from Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. How has the dirty dish dilemma been historically solved? Okay, so right now we're going to meet someone who has taken on one of the biggest foes of community. I'd like to stand over your kitchen sink and you just tell me what your thoughts are. <laughs> Looking at your sink. Looking at my sink? Yeah, just, uh... His name's Daniel Steinbach. Communities and groups of people and crowds and mobs, I've always seen them as complex systems. He's a graduate student in education and design at Stanford, and he wants to tell you about the dirty dish dilemma. So I see in my sink right now uh, an oven pan, a rice cooker. Starting with his uh, own. A couple of spatulas. But then in the sink we have a couple of like dirty cups. Um, you know, that you know someone put some water in to soak. Maybe that's doing something, maybe it's not. Um, and, and so like this sink right here like needs some action because you know, like I said, this, is, this one's poised. Poised, that is, on the edge of a dirty dish disaster. The disaster is part aesthetic, part hygienic, but most importantly, communal. And the frustrating thing is, it's totally preventable. Dirty dishes can be seen as a microcosm of this issue of how a group of people manage these shared resources. I got interested in the question of, well, why it happens and what could you do to solve this? Hey everyone, welcome to the Stanford Storytelling Project. We're going to leave Daniel for a second so I can tell you about our show today. First, my name's Charlie Mintz and I'm your host this hour. It's our first show of the season, so I'm pretty excited. As you know, or maybe you don't know, each week we at the project choose a theme and explore it with fiction, memoir, poetry, journalism, academic sleuthing, and even ballads. Today our theme is community, how we build it, use it, and get used by it. Because community, and I'm talking about real, physical community, not the virtual kind, is messy. It can take a lot out of you. You have to compromise and sacrifice and adjust what you want to what's good for the whole. This happens on different levels, of course, a family sharing the TV or a neighborhood sharing a pool. But the key thing is sharing and coming into contact with other people. Contact is good, and yet we seem to do it less and less. A pretty well-known book called Bowling Alone, published in 2000 by a guy named Robert Putnam, charts the decline of group activity in American life and argues that this decline is tearing our social fabric in a really severe way. I see this when I go back home where my dad still hasn't met the next-door neighbor who moved in six months ago, but here at Stanford, we're actually in a pretty unique environment. In co-ops and fraternities, even in freshman dorms, we as college students are forced to deal with other people, some whose names we shout across great distances and joy, some whom we merely nod what up to on the way to the bathroom, and some we play to ignore, but all who force us to adapt and change and make accommodations for other people in ways we'll probably never have to again, because after college, all that instantly available community goes away. We're back on our own again, in twos or threes, in apartments, or maybe at home. Micro-communities, but nothing like the nearly 20,000 people we might run into on any given day here. So here, today, it seemed like a good idea to explore the meaning of community. We've got three explorations for you today. First, we'll get back to Daniel to hear the solution to the dirty dish dilemma and what the solution reveals about changing the world. Then we're going to a house called Box of Rain, where our producer Matt Harnack checks up on the state of his sustainability-themed intentional community, one that includes two former fraternity brothers. Next, we'll leave Stanford and get out on the water, where a floating community of not-libertarians and burners constramps their fun and teaches seasteading. Don't worry, it'll make sense once you listen. Finally, we're going to hear In B-flat, a community of people who have never even met each other and yet managed to make music. Okay, at last, back to the dirty dishes clean sink has the least chance of, of a dirty dish getting left in it. But once a dirty dish gets left there, that leads to this snowball effect. Because once that one dirty dish, well, the second one comes really quickly. And then the third and the fourth is a snowball. And you get, again, a dirty dish disaster. Okay, so how do people in communal societies, how do they usually deal with it? Okay, well, seems obvious enough. Everyone clean your dishes. Everyone clean your own dishes. And, and that seems like that would be enough, but actually it's not. The reasons why not get to the heart of the dirty dish dilemma. Taking care of yourself isn't enough. How has the dirty dish dilemma been historically solved? Mom cleans up. You concentrate the, the burden onto a single individual. In my co-op, every Wednesday and every other Friday, I am that single individual. I scrub the wood block and wash all the dishes and silverware that people have left behind. 
this solution, the mom solution, fails for Daniel. Those people who receive the burden, their, their commitment to the community, I think, gets eroded. I have experienced a bit of this erosion myself. And the fact of it convinced Daniel that a better solution required a little altruism on everyone's part. But that was just the beginning. The problem he had to tackle next was... How much altruism do you need? How many dishes, how many other people's dishes do I need to clean to keep us safe? What he needed was a number. So to find his answer, Daniel made a computer simulation. He modeled it on Synergy, the Stanford co-op where he was living. First, he plugged in the parameters for a community of that size, made some reasonable estimations about how often people visit the sink, etc., etc., And then, like a Prometheus of the kitchen, he gave his community a simulated sink. It's just a a little rectangle, black rectangle, and it's a grid. And whenever a dirty dish appears, it's a little red square in that grid. There are a lot of little windows and graphs and constantly changing numbers and other complicated bits and pieces to Daniel's simulation. But the two most important components are relatively easy to understand. There are two sliding bars that allow Daniel to control two key variables, the amount of forgetfulness and the amount of altruism. He decided to set forgetfulness at 10%, meaning one out of every 10 trips, someone would forget a dish in the sink. And uh, the sink is clean at first. I hit this button that uh, abandons a dish, it's a forgotten dish. And as soon as I do that, the second, the third, the fourth, and suddenly there's this exponential explosion. On the screen, the black sink grid fills with red, a stark if sterile depiction of disaster. Next, Daniel shows what happens when he adds a bit of altruism to the system. So you can see at the moment, um, the model is sort of poised on the edge of chaos. There's just enough altruism in the community to keep the pileup from happening. So when we see the simulated sink, we see little bursts of dirty dishes piling up, but those piles don't get too large before uh, the people that come along, you know, clean them down. Um, So you get a, a series of people cleaning down the little pile and returns it to a clean sink. So that's a good community. But what happens if people get complacent? Now, if I turn the altruism down, so I reduce the amount of altruism in the community, then suddenly the piles get larger. And eventually it gets to a point where there's a point of no return, where there's no way to prevent the extreme pileup. So every sink is a complex system poised on the edge of chaos. But just a little bit of altruism from everyone keeps things clean. Just how much of that altruism do you need to maintain the clean? Probably less than you think. I calculated that if people one-third of the time were willing to clean a dirty dish that they saw there, that would be enough. Keep in mind this is with a fairly conscientious simulated community, one that forgets a dish just one out of every ten times. But one-third was a little dry anyway for Daniel's purposes, so he rounded up. One-third became one. And so I came came to this final, this is my final conclusion of the dirty dish theory. The solution to clean is U plus one equals clean. Meaning you clean your own dish and if there's a dirty dish there, no matter how big the pile, just clean one thing, one fork, one cup. If everyone is practicing this, really if enough people are practicing it, that little extra will be enough to eat down that pile of dishes and keep it clean. So what can we learn from this as people about living? What can we take from this? I guess this perspective um, shows you how, how even small acts of kindness or altruism uh, in the world can have large impact. And that that might sound cliche, but um, it's true, empirically. It's all about seeing and knowing the decisive moment. And, and I think 
in our day-to-day lives, uh, you know, we encounter these decisive moments uh, and we know when we've let them pass without us acting. Can you think of a time recently or in your life when you faced that decisive moment and chose to act or not act? Yeah, I can remember one. Uh, I was in the supermarket, and I'd forgotten my reusable bag for the grocery. And and that's a rule for me. I always have to bring it. So uh, I didn't have it with me, so I, I bought a new one there. And I looked over, and I saw this friend um, checking out. And she didn't have reusable bags. And she was uh, uh, filling up some paper bags. And I thought... It would be so easy right now. These things are on sale. They're a dollar each. I could just buy one and give it to her. And that, and that would be awesome. I didn't do it. And, and, I, and I walked out of there knowing that uh, I just missed this opportunity. Because who knows, you know, like that one act might have stuck in her mind. And, and that might have encouraged her to then down the road make a lot of different choices in the world, you know. So that's an example. Daniel and I are back at his sink staring down at the two dirty cups left there. It would be really trivial right now for me to clean these glasses uh, and put them in the dishwasher or put them in the, the, the drying rack. And, and that would do so much to prevent uh, a dirty dish disaster tonight in this sink, I can, I can tell you that. Are you going to do it? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it right now, actually. <laughs> One thing that's been surprising for Daniel is how hard it is to actually get people to follow U plus one. Last time I was at Box of Rain, I saw Daniel standing on a stool lit from below by a camping lantern as a photographer squatted beneath him and snapped pictures of his why-do-you-keep-leaving-dishes face, which turned out to be a mixture of shock, disappointment, and fury. It's extra frustrating for him because his house was meant to be the ideal community. Our producer, Matt Harnack, who lives with Daniel, did this next story to answer the question of what went wrong. Last year, after watching one too many of those doom-and-gloom documentaries, I took it upon myself to limit my own resource consumption and to make a movie about it. I got rid of my car, and I tried to eat mostly a local vegetarian diet. We even turned down the heat so low that Zuzanna and I could see our breath in the mornings. I just couldn't stand the idea that I was part of the 5% of the world's population, using 25% of its resources. I got so obsessed with minimizing my environmental footprint that Zuz begged me to go get some professional help. Linda Bazell Saltzman, a therapist who specializes in eco-anxiety, gave me this advice. Find out what the best gifts are that you have, and then focus those gifts on a part of the solution, where you're building the solution. But don't try and solve the whole problem. You're not going to be perfect in every sector of your life. What I would really advise is not to tackle these issues by yourself. They're so much bigger than any one person that really the only solutions are community solutions. So what I would probably suggest is that you either form a group or join a group of people who also are involved in some way. Zuzanna and I moved in together last spring to try to make Box of Rain just that kind of group. How did the idea for making community around sustainability happen? I realized from working with with you on the fossil fuel free film last year that community was a really important part of the sustainability equation. I was partially inspired by Franklin's Tower last year, partially inspired by just stories of hippie communes. It was a mix of things. And then sort of this visceral feeling of feeling alone which was just sort of the experience of feeling lonely in trying to change my life. When I was visiting you, I would get a lot of energy from being part of this community. 
it meant a lot to me to go over to Franklin's Tower and see them eating locally while I was trying to eat locally myself. I felt like, you know, finally, I'm not alone. And I definitely think that the vision that they were successful at producing over at Franklin's Tower is something I wanted to emulate here. Franklin's Tower was Phil Narodick, Daniel Steinbach, version 2.0 community. You know, they had had Uncle John's, which was a really great community, but I think from the stories I've heard wasn't quite as uh, unified and gelled together as then the Franklin's Tower community was the year afterward. But shouldn't this be like version 3.0 and be even more successful? Well, maybe I screwed up somewhere. Phil, who started the Franklin's Tower community with Daniel a few years ago, recently moved up to the city, but still plays a huge role in this community. I got a chance to interview him one morning after he'd stayed up all night studying for a midterm. Good morning, Phil. How you doing? Are you up yet? Can I have, like, five minutes? Yeah, I can I can make you some coffee, too, if, if that would be helpful. That would be absolutely wonderful. I'm a little bit of a disaster right now. That's perfect. Can you make it a big cup? Sure thing. At what point... Did you get uh, did you get involved with the dead houses? I actually hardly ever went to the dead houses before senior year. The end of my junior year, I decided I really didn't want to live on campus anymore. I was sick of the place. I was sick of the fact that Stanford was uh, graduating big babies who had never cleaned or cooked or done anything for themselves. So... Um, like the community organizer that I am, if you will, I went to all my friends and I strong-armed them into moving off campus with me. Um, we put together a 13-person group and moved into Uncle John's band and China Cat Sunflower our senior year. In my opinion, the, the community really started last year. Um, and it was interesting because I was reading this article on community building and I I learned that one of the best things for the formation of group identity and community historically has been having something for the group to hate. So I decided to take all the dead houses that we knew um, and create a list called Dead Houses That Don't Suck at Stanford. Um, Dead Houses That Don't Suck at list on Stanford.edu. And it started with like our dead house and another dead house and a couple other people um, and then slowly, like, uh, girlfriends got added, best friends, and people from Synergy, and the list just kept ballooning until it was, I don't know, 50 people, and inevitably the people in the dead houses that did suck found out about it, and the ones we knew got added to the list as well, and it was awesome because it just turned into this, uh, utility for community organizing. So you basically had an invisible enemy that was like your neighbor. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and you know, and there were some drunken, like, heated arguments about what dead houses sucked and what dead houses didn't. But people started um, inviting all the other people on the list to their parties at the dead houses, to their dinners, um, and we just started getting together all the time, like multiple times a week. Dead houses plus, um, plus their friends, and it rocked. It was really good. In fact, I would say that the Franklin's Tower community that I built, that 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 was built while I was there, um, I'm not taking credit for it, was maybe like the strongest community that I've ever been a part of. I'm no longer part of the Dead Houses. I just kind of crash here when I don't have anywhere else to go. But I hear that, if anything, it's even stronger this year. That now, uh, you know, it, the Dead Houses aren't divided into those that suck and those that don't, but one big Dead House collective that gets together once a week to have potlucks, which is great. Well, we're working on it, but uh, you guys set the bar pretty high, so can you maybe explain what the plan slash vision of your community, the Franklin's Tower community, and the Dead Houses That Don't Suck community? <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, you know, at the risk of, like, <laughs> sounding cheesy... The Franklin's Tower community was was kind of a post-apocalyptic utopia. 
if you will. Um, all of our friends lived down the block, so we'd, like, walk over there at 3 a.m. without shoes on. Um, we, we would, like, forage for our food a little bit. You know, we'd bike to the farmer's market. We'd jack as much free food as we could, could from campus when events were done. Um, uh, I don't know. It was, it was just great. Like, there were, there were always people crashing at Franklin's Tower. We were always, like, helping out as this quasi-self-sufficient community. So here's what I think of as the difference and sort of one of the key things that was actually a driving factor in how I was looking for people for the house. I didn't want all hippies. I didn't want everyone to be the same. I didn't want us all to come from the same background. And I was really looking for people who were interested in sustainability but wanted to do it in different ways. And I think that now I sometimes lose track of the fact that that was, like, one of my goals. I just wanted to live with a bunch of hippies. Yeah, but I think that that's not a good um, way to really start to understand sustainability. I think that the sustainability issue is going to take community, but it's going to take the coming together of many different kinds of communities which are made up of very different folk with different sort of ideologies and worldviews. When Zeus put the house together, she invited Weston McBride and Matt Coleman, two Stanford grads who were used to a different type of community, the Brotherhood of Sigma Nu. So my name is Matt Coleman. Um, I'm a graduate student at Stanford. Um, right now I'm working on my bike, which is my like other mode of transport. And um, I was kind of mean to her yesterday. I rode her in the rain. Earlier in the experience, I know that you were having some reservations and you were basically unhappy with the way things were going. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's... I think I'll... Sorry, I have to process the question and think about how I tackle it. So I first want to talk about, um, in terms of expectations, it was really... I, I said this earlier, but uh, it's important that I thought there was going to be a, like a ruler of the house um, and there wasn't what I didn't realize so so I'm not an idealist I am a cynical pragmatist all the way to the core it's sad um, but true so living in a house with a lot of idealists and especially idealists who I thought were in charge of me I worried that I would cross them by not being fully on board with the direction of the rest of the house and that by doing so I would be kicked out of this housing that I am, you know, here without a lease, I'm like tenuously. <laughs> I, I didn't know my status in the house, and I was kind of new to the community and very worried um, about getting kicked out, losing the roof over my head because of some argument I had with someone. And um, I think that's such, so what, how that made me feel was that uh, he's constantly on my guard, always, always afraid of being out in the street the next day. And uh, trying just to not talk to anyone, just to kind of withdraw from the community to avoid any any interaction that could possibly be bad. But over time, I think the, we work things out. Um, and I think the two kind of key methods for doing that were one, uh, understanding different styles of conflict re resolution. My friends in boxer of the uh, I don't want to say Quaker hippie variety, but. Uh, they adopt a lot of Quaker methods for dealing with conflict, which for someone who's used to, to boxing it out, maybe doesn't make as much sense. But um, they're good methods. I like them. It just took me a while to warm up to them and to not be suspicious of them. What kind of things do you imagine for this community in the future? And how do you see yourself in it? Um... I don't think I'm as ambitious as anyone else in the house. So what I imagine for the community is more or less um, it's a roof over my head, a place to live, people that are nice to hang out with, um, sometimes shared food, but I'm not a vegan, so every now and then I have to make some meat, and that's a, I don't maybe eat as many meals with the house as I could have. I could because of that. But I, I want us all to be friends, I think, is what I really want. Um, I moved here mostly because it's better than living by yourself or with someone else. Um, and I think that still holds true as a basic, like, the basis for community housing is just being with other people. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's 
That's what I think. I think that when you take a moral stance, when you say that somebody who knows about the issues and understands the impact of the actions they take chooses to ignore that, if you think of that as a moral issue, you become judgmental. So I've, I have been a judgmental, environmentally-minded person. And you also become judged. Because people don't want their lifestyles to change. I think they, they're, there's this fierce need to hold on to the lifestyle they've built for themselves, which makes sense. You don't want everything that you've worked towards or everything that you've been taught to be undermined. But that totally undermines the idea of change. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I had this hope that you could bring together a lot of different people from different walks of life um, with different sort of charismatic elements in their personalities and different ways of interacting, different histories, and different reasons to be interested in sustainability. My biggest dream for the house was that it would be a home for conversation, that we would get together, have house meetings, and brainstorm. And so my dream was that we all had something we were passionate about, and that we wanted to change about our community, about our house, and that each of us would take on a different aspect of living in this house sustainably and that it would be an ongoing, evolving, creative process. My vision of the house initially was that by living communally, you inherently use fewer resources, and the work that you put in gets multiplied times eight, and by eight people all pulling their weight, plus a little bit more, you create a massive amount of abundance, and that allows you to do more than you could ever do on your own. Can you tell me about the reality of what's happened in this community? The reality is I think we haven't had a house meeting in three weeks. And we haven't... um, I think we all have different levels of commitment and different expectations of what the community uh, should provide and what we should provide to the community. I don't know what this is supposed to be other than I think I I came to it with like this big idea of this big word of sustainability but sustainability means so many different things it can mean not producing waste using energy efficient appliances not consuming or consuming in a smart way it can mean rebuilding it can mean gardening it maybe it needs policy maybe it means Everybody in the world has to change with their personal habits. It's a huge grab bag of ideas. And I think that my intention was that everyone came in with their own definition of sustainability. And I'm not sure that we all did. I feel like the community could be a lot more. And I do get disheartened when... um, People are just not that into it. My hope for the future is that uh, we get more of the house to buy in to the idea of eating communally, of working together in the garden, of cleaning together. And by doing that, we create that abundance. Matt Harnack is a 2008 graduate of the documentary film program at Stanford University.
Maybe Box of Rain was just too short on floating parties. For our next exploration of community, producer Rachel Hamburg visits Ephemerile, a floating festival in the Sacramento River Delta that's part party, part rational discussion of the feasibility of sovereign communities in international waters. Take it, Rachel. Two years ago, my friends and I threw a party called Floatopia. It was a typical college party. Lots of people, loud music, plenty of alcohol. Except that it happened in the middle of a lake. We made all the boats. We brought a couch out by floating it on trash cans sealed with duct tape. We sailed a 12-foot-long pirate ship that we eventually set on fire. The Stanford Police Department was baffled. They hadn't made any boats, so they just sat around on shore all day and watched us throw one of the best parties Stanford has ever seen. That's why my friend Matt and I were so excited when he heard about the first annual ephemerile event, a giant floating celebration in the Sacramento River Delta. It sounded just like Flotopia, homemade boats, a big party, but with a big difference. The ephemeral website made the event seem political. It was organized by a group called the Seasteading Institute, which posted all these weird quotes online. The safest communities have not been made. The wisest laws have not been formed. But the event itself just looked like a party. There was supposed to be a feast and a talent show. So we didn't know what to expect. A few weeks later, Matt, my friend Reba, and I found ourselves in a car on the way down to the Sacramento River Delta still without much of an idea what we were getting ourselves into. Ephemerile is a floating festival of... Uh, Fun and wonder, magic. I think there's going to be talk of, you know, the ultimate goal of seasteading. <laughs> I wish I knew more about it, but my general concept is that it's about eventually civilizing the ocean. So, yeah, a worthy goal. The organizers of Ephemerile had a mission. They wanted to create politically autonomous communities on the ocean called seasteads. These communities would basically be tiny new countries with total freedom, in a way a libertarian's dream. In the car, I asked Matt, who's majoring in political science, whether that seemed realistic. I mean, some people have tried seasteading on things like, like abandoned oil tankers or abandoned islands. As of yet, all these communities have been squashed by brute force. But I don't think ephemerai will be squashed because it's only for two days. We also definitely weren't prepared for any kind of serious operation. Our boats were whale-shaped kiddie pools that we'd modified by putting in plywood bottoms. We had tested them in the fountain at Stanford, and they definitely floated, at least for a few minutes. I guess we would have made very poor seasteaders, but I wasn't too worried about the logistics of seasteading. Reba wondered whether anyone at the party would even be thinking about it at all. A question that I'm asking myself and that I think it would be interesting to ask all the attenders, attendees of Ephemeral is, are you here for the party or the politics? Which one are you here for, Reba? I, I can't say at this point. I hope to determine that as, as the course of the event goes on. Whichever, you know is more exciting. We got to Ephemerile right as the sun went down. You could see it glowing in the distance because someone had floated a bunch of tiny LED lights in the water like magic dust. And there were also giant glowing water lilies lining the walkways. When we got closer, a pirate boat swam into view. It had two stories and the people on top were waving and hollering at us. I figured they were there for the party. Reba and Matt and I inflated our kiddie pools and tethered them to the platform. There, we met the man in the red fur coat. Here, I'll stand up and show it to you. And I'll describe it on the, on the thing. It's a big, furry, long... Look at the lining inside. Isn't that amazing? It's kept me warm, like ever so warm. I've slept in it. I've made love in it. I've cried in it. You know, it's mine. I've had it for seven years. And it's just, it's my coat. I asked him about his politics and I got a confused answer filled with lines like, I believe everything is a story, except for the existence of God's love, and that's a story too. He never once used the word libertarian. His wife, who introduced herself as Fresh, was sitting next to him. 
I asked her what defined the mix of people at Ephemerile. There are a lot of other people here who are from the Burning Man community. We're pretty good friends with Chicken and Michael, uh, Danger Ranger, who's out here. And uh, it's, you know, people, we know them from Burning Man. Burning Man is an annual festival in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. It's a week long, it's all about music and art. Kind of like Ephemerile, without the water or the libertarians. I asked Fresh whether she was libertarian. No, not at all. So this has been more about fun than politics. So oh, far. much more. This is uh, for me. It's always about community. It's always about the people. It's about the art. It's about creating something together. I wanted to know more about the community that Fresh described. It seemed like it was what drew people to Ephemerile. I asked Fresh if she was a burner. That's the term for someone who considers themselves part of the Burning Man community. Yeah, I identify as that. I feel like um, they're doing a radical social experiment out there, which is it's not uh, a society where the give and take is around money, like it is in the default world. Instead, the, what is trafficked in is human support, the support that you can give to your fellow. And when that many people agree to do that, a magic happens. She gave as an example the story of a geeky friend who got transformed by the Burning Man community. She's become a real um, high-profile person insofar as she's really embraced the culture. She's a costume designer, so she does some extremely fantastic costumes. She's also lost about 70 pounds since she was in college. You know, she's changed herself physically. And she is this unbelievably voluptuous, sexy, outgoing, wild woman who's um, associated herself with the Department of Mut Mutant Vehicles to do these tours. They call them the DMV hotties. They're the girls who go out and they give the tours of all the art cars that are out there. Hey, you know what? Now we're sinking the raft. Fresh wasn't the only person to talk about community when I asked about politics. We're libertarians and we'd like, you know, less government or whatever, but um, it's not, we don't really necessarily view this as a statement so much as just a fun weekend. So you're a boat building libertarian, that's the... Yeah, we, this is the first boat we've ever built, so I think, I guess before that I was just a, um, you know, a San Francisco free love libertarian. My name is Ginevra, lead chef of Ephemerile. Hey, don't throw things at me, I'm the chef. I found out about it through my friend Dave, who just threw something at me. Um, but, uh, you know, Chicken John and a lot of the same people who go to Camp Tipsy and Burning Man and cool stuff. So, But it seemed like a lot of fun. Yeah, so yeah. you're more here for the, the fun than the politics? Uh, definitely here for the fun, uh, definitely here for the art, and uh, apparently for the chili. Are you here for the fun or for the politics? I'm, I'm here for the fun. I'm here for the fun. I mean, I've I've helped Chicken with with other of his um, sort of junk boat, homemade boat ende endeavors before. Which one is Chicken John? Is he here? He was the one that was just in the mic. He's right there. That's Chicken. People kept mentioning Chicken John, the organizer of Ephemerile. Maybe he would have the answers. If he said this party was about fun, I'd believe him. As I walked up to his group, his girlfriend was complaining that she doesn't get to spend enough time with him. You have to convince him to go to an event that does not involve him working 16-hour days for a 16. month. 16. And he won't go to those events. You wish <laughs> I could only work 16 hours a day. You know 16 hours of work a day didn't sound like fun at all. I asked Chicken what was so much work if this was just a party. He pointed at the joints of the platform beneath my feet. So like that goes on a trailer. We stack those up three high, we put some straps on them, and we bring them here. Then we have to go back and get three more. There's 21 total. It's huge. So I mean, well, 21, that's like seven trips back and forth here, you know, and then... Makes it all worth it then. Come on, honey, you do it for the paycheck. <laughs> what makes it worth it? You know, um, people make things. They make things with their hands on like birdhouses, you know, or, or someone will make a cake. You made it. In this way, you know, you imprint on the culture that you want to calibrate to. And in that way, you are participating in manufacture of culture. And that's what differentiates us from other creatures, you know? We're the only beings that create art. Art, by definition, something pointless and intentional. Therefore, you want to live your life as art. You want to manufacture the culture of the world that you want to live in. How's that? That sounds pretty good, yeah. So what does that, does that have anything to do with libertarianism, except for on a, like a... I think that libertarianism in general, the, uh, the ore uh, that makes up libertarianism, is, uh, is basically, because um, libertarian is, 
okay, so to participate in my thinking here, okay, like the uh, idea of libertarianism isn't something that we're ever going to I started wondering why I couldn't get a clear answer when I asked about libertarianism. Everybody talked about it differently. For some people it was community, for some people it was fun, for some people it was an or. I decided I'd let them party and ask more questions in the morning. Rachel, I told myself, right now you're here for the party. Hi! Oh hi! <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the night was beautiful. We slept in our whale boats. It was like being rocked to sleep with auto-tune and naked people in the background. I woke up in the morning to jackhammers. They were taking apart the main platform. When I went to talk to Chicken John and his friends, I heard Brian, the editor of Reason, a well-known libertarian magazine, and a guy named Michael arguing about the transition from ephemerile to real seasteading. This sounded like what I was looking for. We're, we're, we're just here playing. Like, uh, seasteading as, as a, as a full-time dream does depend on uh, economic activity going on. I don't see this as a model of that. But Brian, what about psychological wealth? I mean, there is the real value, even though this is, may not be sustainable as such in the long run. To be positive about it, it does create a tight community of interest in concept and you never know where that's going to lead. Um, doing this is not actually like living out in the open ocean permanently. This is like enjoying yourself in a calm body of water for three days. This is constraining. So I had my answer. Ephemerile was constraining. Unfortunately, I had no idea what constramping was. Constramping is a construction project combined with camping or a camping trip that essentially is a construction project. It's this. You're taking responsibility for your leisure. You're not letting it be a lazy, uh, consumptive thing. You're making what you need to make with your, you and your friends' uh, labor, and it's, it's actually fun and frustrating, and it's more satisfying at the end. It's, it's less satisfying at the very end, when it all has to come apart and go away. <laughs> kind of it's more satisfying in the middle, um, and then maybe less satisfying in the very end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Deconstrapping. This is kind of like building an airplane while you're falling. <laughs> so I thought that was it. Ephemerile wasn't really about being a libertarian or a seasteader in the literal sense. It was more about a community, a community of constrampers. Instead of traditional politics, they put their energy into projects like this one, projects that try to manufacture art and culture and relationships. I was happy with this conclusion. It felt like it included everyone I'd met. But right as we were about to leave on the next houseboat, I ran into this guy. I am Kevin Overman, a proud new author of a book, uh, Sublime Citizens Rise, and uh, it's about uh, ocean colonization uh, set in the future. Kevin was the only earnest seasteader that I met at Ephemerile. It's about uh, the colony that I actually want to build myself. I want to live there. It's, uh, it's how I would set it up. It, uh, it integrates a lot of different uh, emerging technologies, um, and I think it's, uh, it's going to be a practical solution uh, in 20 years. He talked about seasteading as if it was actually going to happen. You can actually produce uh, the, the infrastructure and everything you need in life uh, directly in the ocean. So I asked the million dollar question. So how do you think that relates to this, this particular event? This particular event is, is, a, is a fantastic group of uh, people who are on the edge. Uh, this is the first year this has happened. Burning Man is, is such a great uh, organization, such a great event. Uh, everybody there is, is so cool. And um, doing it on the water is just like stepping it up. And, um, you know, it, it's cool to be here, um, you know, the first time it's happening, uh, to meet all the people here and uh, just, you know, have fun. So even Kevin was here for the fun. My conclusion seemed rock solid. But as he talked, we were approached by a shy-looking man in a suit. I asked if he wanted to join the conversation. No, actually, I was really interested because I, I'm, I'm trying to understand what, what, what this is. I just uh, finished my PhD in, in sociology and law, and I studied piracy. That would be the next project. The real alternative is not just, oh, we want to change the world, but we're staying here. Mm -hmm. 
and you are you are wrong because you are I don't know exploiting when I left ephemeral the two of them were still talking Rachel Hamburg is an undergraduate at Stanford University. After the break, one last community, a virtual community that plays music in B-flat. Stay with us. end our show, we're going to explore a community I've gotten really into lately. It's an online community whose members have never even met each other, and yet still managed to create something incredible. The site, called In B-Flat, was created by a commercial musician named Darren Solomon, who invited people to submit videos of themselves playing instruments in the key of B-Flat. It's inspired by an idea from the 20th century composer Terry Riley. Riley's piece, In C, allows the musicians to play at their own pace. They're playing from the same score, but they can move on when they choose. In B-flat works the same idea, except the music is being created in isolation. Click the first video, and a man will begin to play marimba. It's Darren Solomon, actually. He plays slowly, allowing space for the other musicians. Click another video, and an altered kind of banjo enters. Keep in mind, this was just my order. At the website In B-flat, you are the composer, and you bring the instruments in whenever you want. Click more videos, and more instruments join. Some people show their faces on camera. Some are just arms or bodies. They play as a symphony, and it works. It sounds good. It's surprising, given that the internet tends so much toward chaos. But here is a community that works, just by following one rule, just by staying in key. Our show was engineered by Hannah Krakauer. Big thanks again to Matt and Rachel, who I know, like me, didn't get enough sleep because of this. Big thanks also to our interns, Catherine Harris and Kiki McKee, and also to Lee Constantinu and Killeen Hansen. Original music for the show was written and performed by Japandi, Noah Burbank, and myself. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week for a repeat, but the week after that, or very soon, trash. You love trash. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Charlie Mintz.
she closes the lid and unplugs a device no bigger than her thumb from the computer.